Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of There's No Business Like. I'm Brian Zelmer and I'm joined with Danielle. Oh, hey, it's Danielle Van Hook from McLean, Virginia. And Josh. Telly Ho from Marion, Illinois at the Marion Cultural and Civic Center. (laughs) (laughs) And Katie. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in Midland, Michigan. And last but not least, Kevin. It's Kevin Maynard from Quad City Arts. This week, I spoke with Chris Von Takis, who runs Serious Theater in Beacon, New York. Um, but before we get to that interview, I just have a question for all of you. Since this episode involves talking about comedy and sketch comedy in particular, do any of you guys have a favorite sketch comedy player or somebody that that you've looked up to or watched in that that arena? Yeah, I'll go first. Uh, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey, hands sure. down. <laughs> you own both of their books. I do own both of their books and I've read them multiple times. Tina Fey's book is awesome. <laughs> but I admire them both so much. Uh, their journeys are incredible. They have had incredible careers. They are incredible feminists and have done so much for women in the comedy sphere and the entertainment sphere. I could never get enough of them. And when they hosted the Golden Globes, like pure perfection. So... Tina, Amy, I love you. I love them both. They're both amazing. And Tina, I I loved her book, but her character in 30 Rock, I just like related to that so much. (laughs) I I felt that was my life, only the theater version of it. So this is just now a Tina Fey and Amy Poehler fan podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, it when is. I first got this job on paper, it's like under the Parks and Rec department. And I was like, yes, <laughs> finally, I have risen. <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I have finally assumed my rightful place. <laughs> my dad really loved comedy. And so from a very young age, I was probably watching things like Saturday Night Live that I probably shouldn't have been at like six or seven years old. I go all the way back to like Eddie Murphy. And then there, there was a, another sketch comedy show called SCTV that was based in Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And John Candy was one of the features on that one. And just those guys are at like the heart and the base of everything I love in comedy. Yeah. When I was a, when I was younger, I was a huge Chris Farley fan. Um, just so like, and to this day, like I will still quote Tommy Boy and Black Sheep, but also the motivational speaker. Uh, I mean, yeah, it, it still has an impact on me. <laughs> like Josh, I grew up with a lot of comedy. I was immersed with it. I was obsessed with Saturday Night Live. And they always say that when you're like around middle or high school, whatever cast was on, that's going to be your favorite. And I guess that's true. And I have to go, if I have to pick one, it would have to be probably Dana Carvey. He's the OG of SNL, mm-hmm. just did so many amazing characters and and was just so funny. But honestly, I love them all equally. That whole class, Phil Hartman, Kevin Nealon, who I got to work with and was really great. Kevin mentioned Farley. I worked with his brother, Kevin. Um, I just, I love comedy. I love being around comedians. And I didn't know Chris before I uh, met with him and talked to him about serious comedy theater. And I really enjoyed getting to learn about that and about him. And I hope you do too. Here's the interview. Hi, I'm Chris Fontakis. I am the artistic director and founder of Serious Comedy Theater in Beacon, New York. Chris, it's great to sit down with you today. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Uh, Of course, Brian. I'm just curious, before we really get into the meat of what you do today, I just want to learn a little bit about your role in serious comedy theater. What are some of the duties and and responsibilities? Sure. So in in most uh, improv theaters, the responsibilities get broken down into artistic director, someone who's in charge of the academic program, 
and then maybe someone who's in charge of all like back of house kind of things. Um, and then as it gets bigger, more responsibilities. But the artistic director tends to be someone who is in charge of shows and what the public uh, sees on our stage. And I, I want to learn more about serious comedy theater. But first, uh, I want to learn about you and just see what yeah. your your background is. I know you have an extensive background in improv and sketch yeah. comedy. Can you just kind of give us a, a highlighted version of, of where you started and how it led to today? I remember when I was like early 20s, maybe 21 or something, my stage fright was so absurd. My public speaking, I still don't love public speaking. Uh, I like podcasts, I like performing, I like being on camera and all that stuff, but like a serious public speaking thing is a prison for me. And I remember uh, one day just being like, you know what, if I ever got into entertainment, I think I'd have to be like a model or something because I just like refuse to talk in front of people. And then almost like a curse, like within six months or so, I was like on a path to becoming a performer. I was in business management. That was my college major because I didn't know you could really do other things. It's just like the where I was raised and the way I was raised in uh, Queens and Long Island. <laughs> I was doing a presentation for this thing called the uh, Honda Osimo robot, which was like their first attempt at like an AI robot that like serves you and does and plays soccer. And I felt like I crushed it. Like the presentation went so well. Everyone was laughing the whole time and I got like a B minus. And I went to the professor and I was like, hey, uh, why the B minus? Like I obviously killed. And he was like, oh, it was super funny, but we learned nothing about the product or the company <laughs> or yeah, it was funny though. And I was like, ah, I got to change my major. Okay. <laughs> and I almost instantly just went and uh, went to a counselor or whatever. And uh, I switched over and actually created a new major at Pace because they, they had this minor called film and screen studies. And at that time I was still pretty scared about being a performer. I was like, I want to be in entertainment of some kind, but like, I'm a little too nervous to be a performer, but I think something within it would be cool. And they were like, well, we have this minor film and screen studies, so you could do something else and then have that be your minor. And I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. I'd rather just do that as a major. And they're like, well, it doesn't exist. And I was like, couldn't we just cobble together a degree? And they were like, oh, well, uh, I guess. And then basically just kind of forced them to make it. And uh, <laughs> I never actually finished my degree at that time. I ended up going to LA, um, being there for almost 10 years. When I, I came back to finish my degree, and I found out that it was the biggest major at the school <laughs> at that time when I got back 10 years later. And I was like, and I would tell people like, oh yeah, I was like the first one in the, the and they were like very thankful. It was very weird. What pulled you to LA? While we were trying to cobble together this film and screen studies degree, um, one of the classes I had to take was like uh, one act playwriting. And I wrote, I don't know, the most cliche thing you could possibly write where like, it's very Fight Club-esque. The whole thing takes place in his mind. He thinks he's visiting his brother in like an insane asylum and it's really him who's in there. Like, I mean, if you look up like cliche scripts to write, that is it. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the other students had wrote stuff and they had to cast out their parts and they really enjoyed my performances. And afterwards they'd always be like, oh, it just seems so natural and like effortless. and. You're just, you're, you're a really good performer. And I was like, well, that's all my ego needs to take this and make it a professional thing forever. I signed up for New York Film Academy. It was like a four or eight week intensive. I don't remember. And they put you through a series of classes. So, you know, uh, auditioning for camera, um, acting for camera, acting for stage, Shakespeare, and then improv. And like, I don't know, 10 minutes into the first improv class, I was like, oh, this is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life <laughs> easily. And I think inside three months, I picked up and moved to LA to like go 
do that for real, like be an actor plus mainly focus on improv, which is where that growing scene was, was in LA at that time. And I got there and I got into Groundlings and then very quickly found UCB and uh, Upright Citizens Brigade. Can we just pause a second? Yeah, yeah. Because both of those are huge institutions. I mean, if anyone's ever heard of Saturday Night Live or anything like that, they know those two already. But sure. for those that maybe never heard so of So the Groundlings was the feeder for SNL in the 90s. Uh, Will Ferrell, Anna Gosteyer, Molly Shannon, all those people. I, I believe most of them came from Groundlings. Uh, and then there was this switch once Amy Poehler got on SNL. And uh, UCB really started just jumping off. And then they became the major feeder uh, for both performers, writers, everything. Like uh, the, the majority of that show is comprised of them and just a few random stand-ups and like Harvard grads. Like, yeah, that's it. So were you aware of this? You, you said you just came into improv and you looked into it and you, went, you ended up going to California. Did you realize the, the weight of these institutions you were I mean, this into, is or? 2007, 2008. So... They were coming up like they already kind of had a name for themselves, but they weren't as fundamentally instrumental in the community yet. Like they were just earning that name at that moment. So, no, I was not. Uh, but within a year or two, I was like, OK, this is about to be like the major part of the entertainment industry really quickly. And then it did. And every agent in town was telling all their actors you have to at least take like a 101 with ucb like we need it on your resume nobody's gonna like look at you if you don't have it and yeah that really very quickly became the case so yeah so i was doing that and was acting and auditioning and getting commercials and working with uh college humor and funny or die at some point i just kind of felt burnt out like when you are in the acting industry performing business 24 7 you stop uh, developing new experiences as a human. Um, and I was just too engrossed in the comedy scene, like basically just day in, day out, and not like going out and like, you know, living a real life to like then bring back to my performing. So I needed some time away. And uh, I ended up going back to New York, finishing that degree. I was just gonna take another year and then move back to LA, like feeling refreshed. And I ended up moving to Beacon, New York. And within a month, I met my wife and I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I'm not going back to L.A. <laughs> I want to back up to a couple of things because you, you'd mentioned improv, but I read somewhere that you also do stand up comedy. Has that did that enter your life yet or is that later? So on? that probably started maybe three years into improv. So you were doing both in California. So, this is back in California. I guess this is kind of an important story. I also performed at Improv Olympic, uh, I.O. West out in L.A., there's no way to tell the story without name dropping, but it, it is what it is. <laughs> One night we're, we're at the bar that's like part of the actual theater. And uh, a friend of mine who happened to be Jordan Peele was not famous yet. He didn't even have Key and Peele yet. He was, I mean, probably six months out from that starting. And he had just started really doing stand-up. And now he'd already been on Mad TV and everything. And uh, so he had some clout and all that, but... He kind of felt like he was floundering too. Like he just, he was like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. And, you know, everyone assumes since they saw me on Mad TV that, like, oh, I'm just going to be this great stand up. And that's just not the case. I'm bombing half the time, like, not half the time. You know what I mean? Like he would just, it wasn't what people expected it to be. Like he had to struggle and figure it out himself. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of like feeling the same thing. It's like, you know, I get up on the improv stage four nights a week sometimes. Uh, and I'm so comfortable. I'm more comfortable on stage than I am just existing in life. And I was like, but yeah, stand up still kind of scary. And he's, he just basically was like, gave me like a shitter get off the pot speech. And I was like, oh, fuck. All right. 
all right, man, I guess I'll go do it. And then, uh, and then I did and, uh, it worked out really well and started like rising through the standup ranks pretty fast and started opening for some big name comics. And yeah, it was really cool. And I did that for about four years before I came back to New York and just took a break from all of it for a little bit. So looking back a little bit, was it a slow, gradual build up to the burnout or was there some kind of... It's slow, but there are pivotal moments. Yeah, LA and the entertainment industry in general can be kind of vicious. That's not to say it's not worth it. It is, it is vicious, but its viciousness is what I think carves out some really great people. Of course, there's nepotistic things that happen all the time that somebody who doesn't deserve a position gets it, but then sometimes they actually just get better over the years and then it all works out. But man, it's hard. I, I remember having a few like deals on the line where the amount of money that was being offered to me for like selling a show or whatever to, you know, uh, like a YouTube company that like was going to make a show for us was just nonsensically high. And then like a day before papers getting signed, they fired half of their brass, oh, wow. including the person like working deal. my deal. And mm -hmm. then the person who took it over offered us like a 10th of the price. And we were like, we can't even make the show for that. What do you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just ask because I know a lot of people look at who, who aren't involved in the industry. They'll look at like touring musicians or, or co comedians and working with big name people. And they just see the glamour and the excitement oh, yeah. and they, you know, there are a lot of other things that are just not in front of the, the camera. I don't know a single comedian or actor that in, in any given year doesn't have like two to three months of just crippling depression where like they want to make stuff, they want to be doing something and they're stuck in their house and they just, they don't know how to get out from under the thing. Or even if like you seeing them out and they look happy and everything, that doesn't mean that they're just not putting that mask on for that moment to like go out on an audition, do a thing, whatever it is. And the second they get home, they're just like back in bed, just like, oh, the world is fucking hard. This whole thing really hurts. Uh, it's so common. I know it's taken us down kind of a side path, but I think it's important because the pandemic's kind of brought that to light for yeah. a lot of people, not just within our industry. I mean, depression has come up uh, quite a bit. Have you seen at least the stigma of acknowledging that changing at all since you started in the industry to now? Yeah. Oh yeah. That's cool. Um, I think when I started, there was still this air of like, you still need to be presented in the best way possible. And I think I wouldn't even say, I think I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure the answer is social media that fixed everything because when you need to be on camera for that many hours, of your day, week, month, a lot of stuff is going to slip through. You can only be so perfect and glossy for so much time before your audience sees like little cracks in the armor and they're like, Hey, what was that? And then over time they had to start like just kind of fessing up to like their own, you know, depressions or whatever things they're dealing with their autism or whatever's going on. Like ADHD, uh, they finally start talking about those things. And I, I think that really started in like 2014, 2015. And now we're just starting to like reap the benefits of like making that a bigger conversation and, you know, more stand-up comedians putting that as like bigger chunks of their acts and making it more of a normalized conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I think a, a lot more of them are talking now openly about seeing a therapist and getting the oh, help yeah. they need to, which hopefully will help others that need that help and uh, acknowledge that it's not a bad thing. Yeah. And I, I would say in the past, uh, especially someone with like really rampant ADHD, autism or severe depression, 
they would have been stigmatized and I think people would have stayed more away from them in a general sense as to not have like their name tethered to that person's name, which is unfortunate. Uh, and that is just not the case anymore. So there's that, people that champion every, oh, yeah, every group yeah. now. It was so amazing. Now that we've done a great job um, getting people excited about wanting to be in improv and comedy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 I do try to temper it with like, if you go do uh, accounting, marketing, uh, become a world-renowned baker. I don't know. Like, It's not like those jobs are devoid of the exact same pitfalls. Of exactly. course they are. Yep, yep. Uh, well, I'm just curious if someone seriously does want to get into uh, that kind of career or maybe look into doing improv themselves, what kinds of things can they prepare themselves in? Is there an audition process? Is it just you sign up and take classes and, and work hard and get noticed? I mean, what's the process? 99% um, of theaters, you just sign up. So whatever like the 101 level one intro course is, you just, you sign up, you show up, have some fun. Level one is almost always centered on uh, maximizing fun for new students because that's what it should be. Uh, and then at the end of that course, if they're like, this is for me, I wanna do more. Level two, almost at every theater, adds a little bit more of a dose of reality of like, okay, and then this is what the work actually looks like. And that's not to say it's stripped and devoid of all fun, but any practice that you want to get better at, like even something like woodworking in the beginning, when you're just building like a cutting board or a basic shelf or something, it's an easy, nice, short project, whatever. And, and then you have a thing and you put your cup on it and you're like, oh, I've got a shelf and it holds a candle. Great. Uh, but if you want to get really good at it, it's really hard, you know? Uh, so it has its ups and its downs. Um, but so then some, Theaters have more of a pass-fail kind of thing. Uh, something like Groundlings has a super absurdly strict way that they do stuff. Now, they may have changed their policy over the years. I know while I was there, after level three, if you don't pass it in their eyes, they tell you never to come back. You can't even take level three again, two, one, nothing. They're just like, we do not mesh, leave. That's pretty intense. So they're like, do not take level three until you know you're ready. That was a pretty intense system where others, it's more of like, yeah, just keep taking whatever class you're not passing until you get better at it and then can, you know, go forward. It is a tricky thing though, especially if you're in the area where you want to be a successful professional version of yourself. Um, I like where, where we're at for newer you know, comics and stuff, because we're not in New York City. We're not in L.A. This is a great place to cut your teeth. Try anything. Throw shit at the wall. See what sticks like really be free to fail, because, you know, once you then bring you whatever you have to offer to the bigger areas and stuff where where the things are getting made, you get judged instantly. And then it's kind of hard to get rid of that. So I want to catch up back to your story. You said you came to Beacon, New York and found your wife or whatnot. Mm. But what brought you to Beacon? Uh, for those who don't know, we're, we're about, what, an hour and a half north of New York City? Mm. Yeah. About an hour by train? Yeah. So Right, right on the beautiful Hudson River. I yeah. Mean, just, it's, it's a beautiful area. It's a, it's a weird story. I was, in, uh, I was living in Brooklyn in Bushwick, and I had one semester left of college when I had gone back in my early 30s. Uh, I'm 40 now. And uh, I had one semester left, and my sister had just moved her and her family from Long Island up to Pauling, New York, um, for her husband's job. And then he, on his 36th birthday, gets this great idea to join the Army National Guard. <laughs> Apparently, it's just been in his heart to have something to do. And uh, so he, he goes and does that. And uh, while 
he's away. She's like, Hey, can you come live here and help me with the kids? <laughs> like while my maniac husband just goes and does this thing. He's a great guy. Uh, and I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. And, uh, by the time that time was over and I went to go back to find another place in Brooklyn, all the prices went up by like, I don't know, 50%. It was crazy. I was like, all right, I just definitely don't want to be back there. I've already graduated. I'm good. And, uh, I basically spun the wheel of Hudson Valley and was like, show me an art town. And then I, found Beacon and literally moved here blind, knowing nobody. That kind of brings us into starting your company. And I read on there that, uh, and I don't know if this is just comedy or if it's true, sure. but that you started the company because you wanted to make friends. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know anybody it. here. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It, 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 it's a combination of I needed friends and it kind of happened by accident. So was uh, this the first time you started your own company? Cause up until then you've been time. a performer. Oh, second time. Okay. I owned a skateboard shop in Long Island. Oh, wow. Yeah. wow. I don't know if we should touch on that or not. That sounds interesting to me. Uh, I would call it more misguided than anything, but I'm sure you learned, even if you made a lot of mistakes, yes. especially if you made a lot of mistakes, I you made, probably learned a lot from that experience. I made an infinite amount of valuable mistakes. Before we get into <laughs> serious, I'm just curious, is, is there one particular mistake you could share that you learned there that helped you when you started this company? It's one of those things of like, if you consider yourself to be someone that has uh, good taste and like you, you, you know enough about the thing you're getting into and that you really believe the thing you're about to do, commit to it a hundred percent, even if that puts you in a scary financial place for a little while, if you do 75% or 50% of what that real dream was, it will fail 100%. Um, but if you just go full bore for it, they see your dream. They, they pick up on it. Their subconscious picks up on it. And they're like, there's something here. This place is like electric. I'm in. And I, I didn't go full bore the first time. Wow. That that's a powerful lesson. Um, and, and I'd have to say from my own experiences, that's very true. Yeah. And it's something that isn't really talked about or thought about. So thanks for sharing that. Oh yeah. Uh, so bring us into serious now. Tell us more about the company. We kind of just touched on it at the very beginning of our conversation, <laughs> but I, I want to really dive into it now and understand what you do now. <laughs> There's really no way to get to this without the slightly longer version of when I finished my degree at Pace. I decided afterwards that I wanted to just work a series of different jobs for about three months at a time. I was like the best way to get more world experience and things I can pull and write from and create would just to be to live m the most uh, life I can live. So I did that and I started working for uh, a cabinet maker and I was installing kitchen cabinets and creating them and I apprenticed for two different blacksmiths. I volunteered for the fire department for a year and a half. I sold trailers and dump truck bodies. Uh, I worked for a, an artist and helped him move his art around. Uh, I worked for another artist and drove it to different galleries and helped him create his bigger pieces, um, sold ad space for a website. Like I just, I did everything three months, move on three months, move on. And that was the plan. But you know, if anything you commit to, you start to really get into it. But again, I started to feel that like that itch and that claw to get back into performing. And uh, I was just walking down Main Street in Beacon one day and friends of mine, uh, they own um, BPAC Beacon Performing Arts Center, which is like a kid's musical theater company. And uh, I was like, hey, you don't happen to have like adult comedy classes here, do you? And they're like, no, this is a kid's place. I was like, is that something you think maybe we could do like as like a you know, just try it out kind of thing. And they're like, yeah, maybe. And after a few months, we finally cobbled something together and 
we put on our first improv jam where they still fundamentally did not understand what that even meant. And, uh, nor did the community at large, but like 40 people showed up. Wow. On, not even knowing what it was. They showed no up. idea. Why, they, why do you think that is? What was it that attracted them to come? They're, they're just such amazing, friendly people. The people that run, uh, BPAC, Jake and, uh, Kate, that when they put the message out to the parents of all the students that they had, they were like, yeah, what is this? Let's, we're showing up for it. And, uh, it just worked out. And then from that, there was a core group of people that were like, Hey, we want like classes or more and more jams, more classes. We're like, okay. And then just kept you know, based on demand, like they just kept wanting more and more and more and more and more. And we outgrew the kids theater pretty quickly and had to get our own spot. And yeah, and the theater was just kind of born just from pure demand. Like I did not necessarily try it. That's why I say it's an accident. It just kind of kept happening. Um, this is a pretty cool place yeah. that we're sitting in and talking together at now. Can you just maybe for our listeners, tell us, tell us about this space. So we are in the former, uh, Beacon high school. Uh, the city, when it went through harder times, ended up selling a lot of the government buildings. They, they sold this to build a, a new facility. This one was getting a little uh, worse for wear. And uh, and the city's booming now. But So I imagine they regret selling it. <laughs> but they did sell it to a um, an artist, art collector. And uh, so he set up a gallery in here in one of the rooms and then ended up just renting the rest of the rooms out to local artists, businesses, whatever people wanted to use it for. And it, I mean, the building is really like the wild west. Like it is just, it's such an art scene. Like I could feel the arts, you know, just kind of pouring out of this place. And it's amazing. There's virtually no oversight from any higher. It it just feels like you can do and create whatever you want. Uh, it's a really, really cool place to be in a time where it feels like that thing doesn't exist anymore. Uh, yeah, so it's pretty cool to have that. And, uh, we were in a smaller classroom and we just upgraded a few months ago to a bigger one. And your friends in the the children's theater, are they involved, um, in this business or did you? Yeah. So they start help start it, and then they got way too busy with the kids stuff. Uh, but now Jake is back with us as a performer. Uh, he's super funny and, uh, he's on one of our improv teams. I want to get into a little bit of the business of how you created this and what you do then behind the scenes. Like what, how did you come up with what you're going to offer and your schedule and your, your pricing, you know, who determined? Yeah. Uh, my wife handles a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. So pricing and scheduling website maintenance, all that stuff. She's very good at that. But I'm guessing you had to come up with the curriculum to tell her this is what I want to do. And I basically cobbled together the original curriculum from just an amalgamation of all the places I studied at between UCB, Improv Olympic, Groundlings. I just, you know, I I am the creation of a little bit of each of those. And, uh, and I kind of thought that's what it was going to be forever. And I was very wrong because after every single class, I rewrite my entire syllabus for that class. Uh, and it is dramatically changed into something else. That's at this great point. that you can be open to that and notice that it needs to adjust and change though. I think constantly that's... I'm utterly obsessed. I literally cannot stop changing the syllabus and updating it. New ways to communicate to students, the things that frustrated me so much when I was a student, because I certainly, when I was going through, there were so many gray areas where I was like, but why, why can't you explain how this part works? Like, what is the connecting piece from this to this? And why do I feel terrified all the time about that when that comes up? And I've just spent the lion's share of my time, uh, figuring out how to communicate to students. Like 
the anxiety that's being created for you right now is because of this. And then this is how you connect those two dots. And then just watching them just relax and then be able to perform so much more confidently. So what, what's your long-term dream or goal? And I don't mean like long, long-term, but maybe five years from now, what, what do you hope you're doing or doing better? This kind of ties into something I was saying earlier of like, at the moment, this is a great place to cut your teeth because you're not bringing it to one of the big entertainment cities yet. For those who still want to like, you know, come up through the improv ranks or the stand-up ranks, you have to be in a major city. Otherwise, you just won't make it. Um, and I would, I would like to crush that a little bit and make it so that being somewhere like here, Beacon or just any smaller city like still could be a viable route via cobbling together like there'd be a few performance venues here that you know people of note are coming to see so that you know you can be written up about and get more exposure but also through your own social media uh creation that you can get more exposure as well so with performances do you do them here in the space mm -hmm. or do you also go outside and rent venues or uh so the space we have now is nice and it seats about 100 people so which is pretty good for most of what we need to do. Um, and now the only time we do outside performances is purely for the joy of mixing it up, meeting some new people, new friends. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's just kind of because we want to, as opposed to, uh, it being like a need based thing. Chris, I have a time machine Oh, great! and, and we're going to take a little ride and go back to, uh, just when you came out of the younger, you came out of that improv class, the first one you took. And I'm going to give you class. a minute or two to either give yourself some advice or to, um, you know, maybe even just encourage yourself, whatever, whatever you want to say, what, what does that Chris need to hear from you today? I don't know that I have any advice for my past self. I think that struggle was important. I think overanalyzing was important. I think it made me the teacher that I am today for sure. I, I don't know that I'd really want to change anything. I, I think a lot of people want to go back and fix their past, but you you are what you are because of your past and i'm a big fan of needing terrible things to happen to yourself to make the good things that much better i did not come up with that that is you know an age-old thing but i heard it first on beavis and butthead where beavis is like asking butthead uh he's like uh, uh, butthead why, why why does some stuff cool and some stuff have to suck and he's like uh because how would you know what's cool if some stuff didn't suck that you could compare it to or some, something along those lines. And he's like, ah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so funny. That's something so deep and, and true. Yeah. It comes from Beavis and Butthead. I mean, the guys that write that show are brilliant. Oh, they are. So we're almost done, but I just was curious if you had any pieces of wisdom or advice for somebody who's just maybe entering the industry or thinking about entering, entering the industry. What's something that they should put in their toolbox now? You're doing better than you think you are. The criticisms that you think other people are making of you aren't as harsh as you're perceiving them. You are also judging yourself a lot harder than you need to be judging yourself. Try to be a little kinder to yourself along the way. You are in the beginning of a long learning process. And just because your friends or those around you or someone you compare yourself to is succeeding more than you or whatever the case is does not have any reflection on who you are as a person or a performer you're going to get to your stuff in your own time and while it may suck to have to wait it's it's your own journey 
write it all down, remember all of it in some way, video it, whatever you got to do. It's hard to watch everyone go through that and think that every moment is just so important. And they're in their second year of like acting or whatever. It's like, just relax. I, I it's all going to work out. I love that a lot. Um, I always ask this as the last question. What do you like most about working in the industry today? In, I don't know, 2013 or 2014, uh, Bridesmaids came out around then, I think. And it really threw me back. The women around me were on improv stages four or five nights a week like I was. And I was like, yeah, they're really funny. I don't know why this isn't being represented in TV. I don't know why this stuff isn't happening. Because, you know, the certain groups were very against, you know, then women playing Ghostbusters. And, this and, that. and I was like, yeah, yeah, maybe it's not up to like technically your perfect, you know, thing that you could never even achieve either random commenter. Uh, but you got to give people time to sharpen their craft to catch up to the people that have been given all the opportunity, uh, women, people of color, uh, the LGBT community, you can be angry if you want, or you can do what I did and become a teacher and help champion other people to, you know, see what they're capable of. And every time somebody achieves something they didn't think was possible for them, especially when they were growing up, because that world definitely didn't exist. Uh, it, I'm infinitely happier than my own successes. So uh, being a teacher right now and getting to see that is so rewarding. Chris, I really enjoyed sitting down with you and learning about your story. And thanks for sharing with us today. Right. Thanks for having me. Brian, thanks so much for that interview. I mean, you know that I love improv and I love supporting improv and, you know, improv education has a close, close spot to my heart. But, um, Listening to him talk about places outside of New York and L.A. to be more of a place where comics and honestly, even other kinds of artists could come up. I imagine that he feels that way because people probably look down on people who are starting out in smaller places because there's not as much clout. And, you know, there were sort of two places in this interview where social media was really like highlighted and given love in ways that yeah, it's often yeah. not. I thought that yes. was interesting. Yeah. And so... I love that combination of sort of like building your in-person um, sketch, improv, like stand-up abilities while you're also able to start building like a social media persona or doing like um, social skits and things like that to build up your credentials or just to build up your following before you end up in one of these places that are much more shark-infested waters. Mm -hmm. You know, all these other forces that are um, bringing you down. Like I, I want, I want more, I want more of him in the world. I think it was yeah. And Chris is a great example of doing the thing, right. Going and pursuing your dream and then taking those skills to a different community and creating opportunities for others in, like you're saying, Danielle, a place that's more affordable, that is less stressful, where you have the support of family and friends and that sort of thing. And, you know, he fully recognized that burnout and then switched his trajectory and has created a great opportunity for himself and for other folks that want to pursue that. It just goes to show that like art can exist and should exist anywhere. And those educational and training opportunities need to exist in other places other than just big cities. And there's a lot of value in that. I think a lot of us that work in smaller institutions, work in rural communities, um, aren't in Chicago, New York, or LA. Like we just don't feel as valued or that the work that we do isn't as important, but 
clearly it is because everyone needs what we do. Um, and so I just really love that example of like taking your experience and building something for others uh, based on that. I loved his outlook on, on education, teaching people about like how he felt fulfilled by seeing other people's success uh, and, you know, being able to play a part in that. And I, and I, and I love that. And it sort of has centered around everything that he has built there um, is, you know, helping other people succeed. Well, and I also love that he doesn't have an ego about the way he teaches. He was talking about how his curriculum changes every single time that he does it based on the successes from the last time that he did it. And he's constantly learning and reworking it to be a better program all the time. And that that's where he's, as the person running the program, he's taking his own ego out of it and saying, I don't know best, I'm learning all the time. I also really like that he brings up the, the mental health aspect of comedy. To quote him, he doesn't know a single comedian that doesn't occasionally experience crippling depression. And I don't think that's isolated to just comedians. I don't know many artists that, that don't occasionally suffer crippling depression, my, myself included in that. You put so much of yourself into these things and, and then there's just nothing left. I went on a string of four or five murals that I created over about a month and a half at one point and I crashed so hard for about four or five weeks afterwards and just hit a depression that I couldn't get out of. I remember being in it and telling my wife, I was like, I'm just, I'm, I'm just down and I can't get out of it and I don't know how to get out of it. But it was a very active acknowledgement of, I am so down and I can't get out of it. I don't know how to get out of it right now. And what finally broke it, broke that depression for me was actually creating again and, and diving back into the creative process. I've also had an experience of like creating um, a program that just like got a lot of like, you know, like congratulations and things written in the press and, you know, a lot of people like saying a lot of really nice things about it. And it kind of gives you like a little bit of a high, you know, like I can do this. And then, you know, that thing kind of ended and I felt so much pressure that like the next thing and the next thing and the next thing that I did also needed to be as amazing, if not better. And that was crippling as well. I mean, that just put me in, like, I had no creative ideas whenever I was in that sort of a place. We shouldn't be imposing those kind of things on us, but you do feel that as a creative person, that pressure to just keep going and upping and upping and upping. I feel that in my bones at this very yes. moment. Um, so many of my friends that are painters are pushing me to get into the canvas work and I had such success on the murals that I'm scared to death on these canvases. Like I've, I probably have 20 canvases in my studio at the house that I built a studio. I bought the paint. I, I built everything out and I've yet to put paint to, to canvas just out of exact the anxiety and crippling fear of how can I live up to what I've already done? I will say though, for a lot of creatives, I think that we do need to remember to look at the people around us whenever we're in those kind of places and know that like they have our back. Um, and the only reason that I'm thinking of that is just like, Josh, like, you know, you've got four people that are like going to hang whatever you make on their wall. Or at least three. And that's pretty good too. <laughs> 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 but I, you know, I do think whenever you get into that funk, it is hard to remember that the people that you love, that you support will also come and be that support for you. 
Yeah. And in our house, we just sort of refer to it as the case of the sads. Um, we're like, you're just having these moments where you're like, look, I, I understand that most things in my life are fine right now. Like in, in theory, like there's no reason that I should be feeling this way. I can't, I can't control that. Um, and then, you know, having that encouragement of, uh, you know, going to talk to somebody or going to a therapist or doing something like that. And I think, you know, tying back to, to Chris's interview, um, his observation of talking about social media and, you know, being sort of that driver of being more okay to talk about mental health, which is something I, I never considered um, until he started talking about it. And I was like, yeah, we do see sort of that, you know, depression and mental health talk um, proliferate uh, on, on, on our social media accounts. And I think that, you know, we have spent so much time sort of thinking about social media in that reverse aspect of like villainizing in the sense of like, it's what's causing this depression versus going, you know, this might be the reason we're talking about it more, having a bit more comfortable, having these conversations like we're having right now. When he brought up social media, I thought it was going to be the typical, you know, why it's bad. But yeah, that was really surprising and, and made me think in yeah. a new way about it. One thing that he made me think in a new way about was the infinite wisdom of Beavis and Butthead. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I loved his story about going to his school administration, like wanting to cobble together a degree and creating that kind of from scratch out of nothing. And then he leaves and comes back and all of a sudden it's the most popular major at Pace. And pretty sure, Kevin, you and I, when we sat down with those students at APAP during the the um, mentorship session, the two students we sat with at the table were in that program. Like that was what they were majoring in at Pace University. And so I just love that oh, wow. idea of like oh, yeah. asking, right? Kind of going back to the conversation we had with Max Darwin months ago about like, all you can do is ask and all they can say is no. And sometimes a big swing pays off and you have effects like there's long term, <laughs> you can have a long term impact. And what he did really changed um, the trajectory for a lot of additional students at Pace and gave them an opportunity that didn't exist before. So I really thought that was a very cool part of his story and a great lesson in just like asking. I also like his uh, advice about going full bore and putting a hundred percent in because it's like when, especially within the arts, it is so painfully obvious when someone isn't putting in all of the effort that they can. Um, and just, just, you know, to put everything you have into it, if that's what you're passionate about, put yourself into it and put it out there. Circling back to Chris's advice at the very end about essentially imposter syndrome, not measuring yourself against others and you're on your own timeline. I just think that we cannot emphasize that enough um, amongst ourselves as friends and colleagues and, and with other folks in the industry, especially emerging talent coming out as administrators or artists. Like it's so true and it's so easy to forget. And I just really love Chris reinforcing that at the end of your conversation. And I think it's something I personally have to work on. I struggle with that quite a lot in a lot of different ways. And so I just appreciated him lifting that up again. And I hope people take a moment to really listen to that, the end part again and, and, and take that to heart. So thanks Chris for that. So after I was done speaking with Chris and packing up the uh, podcasting equipment, he was talking to me a little bit more about his studio and, and we walked around and saw the space more. So he was telling me about this one Ivy League professor who immigrated from an Asian country. English was not her first language. And she was having a hard time not only connecting with students, but even just having building a rapport with her faculty colleagues. And so she took a couple improv classes, hoping that that would help her loosen up a little bit and learn some some new ways to connect with people. And she found it so valuable that she then took more and more and more and ended up being 
being one of the regular people that came to not only take classes, but be part of their company. And and she she's such a big uh, proponent for improv and some of the important work that it can do outside of just entertaining. I want to thank Chris for sitting down with me again, and I thank you guys all for sharing what you did. And we look forward to you tuning in next time on There's No Business Like. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanho. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslife.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? (laughs) I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus I-ness every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. I only am shaking my head because I've experienced those like Parks and Rec style meetings. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm going, oh, God, no. (laughs) It's a bit too accurate at times. But like, do you also sometimes just like buy something unnecessary and be like, Treat yourself. Treat yourself. <laughs> you ever just uh, buy anything all, like wildly unnecessary? <laughs> it's like, treat yourself. Treat yourself day is October 13th and Galentine's Day is February 13th, just so you all know. <laughs> so let's just buy something great for ourselves the 13th of every month. <laughs> Done. I like Danielle's thinking.